And now, welcome again to the Release Studies Project podcast. This is the discourse episode for the month of November. Now, um, well, uh, I'm a long-time RSP member here, so, well, anyways, I'm going to say my name. I'm Sidney Castillo. I'm currently a doctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki. And at the moment, I'm doing my field work in Peru on ayahuasca and in ritual practices of indigenous peoples. So I am joined now by Sharde Musunyon and Jordan Lowen Colon. And this is, uh, well, I'm pleased to be joined by them. And we're going to talk a lot about things, religion and other stuff. But please, if you could be so kind to introduce yourselves. First, Sharde, we can go this way. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the RSP um, and have used it in my teaching for so many years. Uh, I'm an associate professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. And my research explores the ontological and aesthetic dimensions of mind augmenting technologies ranging from AI to psychedelics. Um, and my new book project and my whole program of research right now is about the so-called psychedelic renaissance as an entheogenic new religious movement, um, situating that in the long history of Western esotericism. Perfect. Um, please, Jordan. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, uh, the first time listener, first time interviewee to the, to the RSP. So this is all new to me, but I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. So I currently serve as the AI ethics and data justice, uh, postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University in their computing department. And my background is in religion and technology broadly, but I'm a religion and VR guy. That's, that's my bread and butter. I'm super, super interested in the ways that technologies are, are being used now, specifically virtual reality to induce altered states of consciousness that are similar to what we might see in religious experiences or mystical experiences or spiritual experiences and exploring what they're doing to our, our minds and our bodies and, and trying to kind of generate some awareness about that so that we can be more critical of what new media and these new technologies are doing. Perfect. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about because I'm also researching psychedelics, but in another context. So it's like a perfect panel. Well, now we're going to move on to discuss. We have many topics and, uh, I think the streamline or, or like, uh, the conductor line will be also psychedelics. But well, first, I will introduce my topic, which is about uh, indigenous peoples and animism and the COP27, which was very recently. Then we will move forward to Chardet's topic, which is psychedelic, uh, psychedelic renaissance and new religious movements. And thus, we will move towards uh, Jordan's topic, which was like IA and altered state of consciousness and all psychedelics. So that will be more or less our program today. And so I will just speak briefly about my topic. As you may know, this past uh, November, like between like the second or third week of November, was the COP27 or the Climate Change Conference for agreements with, um, for agreeing with like, uh, like climate change policies in general by the states. And so there was like a indigenous delegacy or contingent that were participating in indigenous pavilion. And they have been doing this for the last um, 
eight years or so because the first indigenous pavilion was introduced in 2014 and it was actually introduced in Peru. And I actually also participated in that, in that uh, event as a translator from English to Spanish. So I had an, an idea of what, uh, what kind of discourses going on are going on in there. Uh, although the, well, this time was carried out in Egypt, the event. Uh, and I managed to check out some of the kind of conferences and also the most of the like, uh, statements that each of the indigenous uh, organization gives in these kind of events. And I've kind of monitored three of them, which were IDESEP, or the Interethnic Association for the Development of the Peruvian Rainforest, the CODEPISAM, or Coordination for the Development and Defense of Indigenous Peoples of San Martin Region, which is a uh, rainforest region in north of Peru, which where I, where I am located at the moment, and uh, sacred basins or Cuencas Sagradas. Uh, uh, these are like co-binational, uh, a group uh, group that work with the indigenous people from Ecuador and also Peru, mostly Awahum uh, or Hibaro speaking peoples. And so, one of the kind of common denominator we would say is like, of course, the reclamation for titulation of lands, which is a big issue in, in Latin America for, you know, for indigenous peoples at the moment, because not all of the indigenous people have the right to their own land, but they have to go through a process that is like sanctioned by the, each state. And in the case of the Peruvian state, it only has been going on for the last uh, 50 years, so to speak, since 1974, with the law of indigenous communities. So there is like a process that each indigenous community have to go undergo to be able to be titled or have ownership of the land. And in that way, the initiative for preservation or conservation of of the Amazon rainforest will be more factible or more doable. But uh, this is one of the main reclamations. But turning into the kind of religion, religion side or religious studies perspective on this matter is that most of the time in public discourses and uh, in declarations as well to mass media or to kind of the main stakeholders, it's like there is this vindication uh, of the land as like living, living land and intera- uh, kind of also a vindication or a statement as that people interact with spirits in the land and they have like a horizontal relationship or a, like a constant relationship that allows also the living for the own, for themselves. So it's like interacting with the spirits of the, of the plants or animals or other kinds of spirits that are within the, the, the forest. And uh, yes, this more or less can be kind of argued as a subject that is factible, but some of, for some other indigenous groups will be more something like our positioning in, uh, in public arenas. But the interesting thing is that it's always present. And uh, I think it obeys as, as a way for indigenous peoples to kind of perform politics, but also like assert their own perspective within politics and within the public arena. So um, I would say that this has been more even visible in the latest 10 or 15 years where with the main kind of, kind of uh, diffusion, we would say, of uh, psychedelic, psychedelic substances because for most, for more Western audiences, animism become more tangible when going through these kind of experiences. And it's not by a, like a default uh, kind of, um, like a default uh, or baseline outlook. But for indigenous people, say like that, I'm not saying 
that they because they drink psychedelics they are more animism. No, but it's something that is within the cultural kind of uh, kind of perspective and also baseline for understanding the world and the use of these these kind of plants are part of them, um, which for Westerners it would be more plausible to understand this kind of animism by drinking or uh, using psychedelic substances. And with that, I will, um, I mean, I don't know if you have any comments. I think it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit after this event. It was, it just happened really recently, but I think it's symptomatic of what is going on with uh, indigenous politics and also, uh, as we will say, uh, we will see the psychedelic movement. So many questions and comments. I, one of the things that I'm so curious about with your research, Sydney, is, um, on the, the concept of animism. I, I remember reading, um, the work of, uh, a friend and colleague, Joanne Baraka Thomas on animism in the context of, um, Japan and anime. And there was a lot of caution there about using this concept of animism um, you know, to describe anything that was culturally Shinto inflected, for instance. And I wondered if that's a similar concern, or I mean, if there is a concern for you in the, this is a discourse episode, in the concept of animism, um, is it something that, that, that you actually see come up it's used in people's speech or in reportage from journalists, or is it one among terms that you've found to be a useful heuristic from our religious studies conceptual toolbox? Um, yeah, I'm just I'm so curious about how like how well that that concept functions for you in your research. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, uh, it's a difficult concept to apply because if you are like, it's like the same when you are saying that people believe in things, that, uh, it's, it's people are not actively, uh, constantly asserting something as a belief and much less like uh, performing it or acting it upon it by, through specific actions. Save in very specific instances like ritual, for instance, which would be also, I would, debate the use of the term belief because it's not a belief, but it's at the value attitude that is performed in a specific setting. But uh, for this, for the same reason, is animism a, a problematic term for me because it's, it's, it's like speaks uh, about, uh, it tries to analyze a phenomena that is transversal to human populations, which is like the sense of uh, perceiving supernatural agents or the ability to, to, to perceive supernatural agents, and also the way our cognitive devices function to address this kind of uh, outer state of perception or different kind of way of perceiving things. Um, for me, animism is a consequence of that, and it's not the cause. Uh, I think sometimes people confound the two and say, yeah, indigenous people are more animism because blah, blah, blah. They have a different conception of, uh, of the world, which is... Partly true, but it's not the whole thing. I mean, even in where I'm located in Peru, I mean, it's not because we're in the third world or nothing. It's just because uh, people also think that MB, for instance, can do, 
can be a, a, a physical thing that can cause you physical harm or, or jealousy, for instance, you know, and it's, it's uh, very patently, in, even in, in urban centers like Lima or Trujillo or where I'm located, sitting in the rainforest, Tarapoto, these things like have a causality. And it's not because people are more or less animistic, but just because it, their minds were on their minds and their bodies and like work that way or like a embodied mind, we would say. So, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is this kind of metaphysical aspect, right? So like we, it's, it sounds like there's a bit of a uh, kind of a dualism at play, this play between the material and the immaterial mind and body. And I'm curious how, how that kind of functions politically for the, 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 the COP20. Like I, it, was it, was it like a, a, a successful kind of political strategy to play on this, this animism to, to kind of call upon this animism as a way of imbuing the land with more meaning. Like, did that work? Did the, did the other countries uh, kind of take it seriously or is it that classic move where like the bigger countries just kind of dismiss uh, the, these, these land claims as, as, uh, in for all sorts of uh, uh, horrible reasons, but like they're just like, oh no, we can't take them seriously because they're still like dualistic type thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult thing to answer also because first I'm not that much into that area of research, but I would say that whenever it's it's like involved, animism is involved for like kind of a discussing claims claims to land or ownership of land. Uh, yeah, it's, it's listened as uh, something, and this is based on my experience with the COP14 and 20, that was 2014. It's listened in some way that, okay, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I mean, we have to make money or we have to keep growing with the GDP. And we are not that, uh, kind of enthusiastic as you say that you have this land and because the land belongs to the land and the things that are below the land and the th- airspace also belong to the state. This, I think in any constitution, a Peruvian constitution, certainly that is the case. So, and this has been a kind of a frequent matter of this kind of a discontinuity or not being able to implement this kind of perspective or, or, uh, or discourse within politics. It has been an issue here in Peru because many times indigenous people have been relegated in their rights and also indigenous, like the way that people indigenous peoples act upon politics, they are like always dismissed or not that kind of pay attention to. But uh, I would say that it's a thing that it's a constant struggle that we need for their examination for observing the, its development. Yeah. But I think in Colombia, uh, in Colombia, Bolivia, I mean, even in their constitution, they have a claim that it's la, la, uh, nature has its own personality. And it has like a, also a legal I would say like legal personality is the term. So it, it, it has its own set of uh, laws to, to defend itself, but it has to be enacted through a different kind of agent, which in this case will be people that are located within a specific part of the environment or natural reservation area, natural protective area, these things like that. So, yeah. Very so cool. now we can, we can move on. Yeah. We can move on to Chardet's topic, which is also very interesting. It's tying in with psychedelics and kind of uh, this kind of different worldview or kind of discussing different worldviews, if you please. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I was just thinking about the fact that one of the, one of the great hopes in the psychedelic space seems to be that if people can have these experiences of the 
animacy, the livingness, the the vibrancy of things that in the dominant Western mentality are, get represented as sort of dead matter, then we will have some kind of environmental change. It's only one of the many hopes, um, and I certainly don't want to paint it as though it's uh, always necessarily a naive one. I think people are uh, pretty savvy in the psychedelic space about, you know, this isn't a panacea for human health. This isn't a panacea for um, the health of the earth, but it is, uh, but it is one of those experiences that people have. Um, so the, the story that I came across in advance of recording this episode, that is just a portal into the sort of larger psychedelic conversation that I know we're all interested in is this newly formed entheogenic church, the church of Salomathoxen. And this is really timely right now because it was just created and the big launch was actually on Remembrance Day or Veterans Day, November 11th. And there are at least three things going on here that I'm really interested in, in thinking about the today's so-called psychedelic renaissance. I, I heard it um, glossed as the entheogenic era hmm. recently, which hmm. I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. because that names the whole era as somehow inherently religious or having to do with some kind of religious or spiritual import. Um, but, and the idea there is that the Renaissance is over. That was sort of the thawing of psychedelic research in 2000. Um, and then at this point in the past couple of years, we've seen some sort of real decided shift with like decriminalization and legalization movements, um, general popularity, etc. And so insofar as I'm interested in, in tracking the actual self-described new religions that are coming out of this, but also thinking about the prevalence of religious discourse, like religion relevant language you know, in the, in the family resemblance concepts um, like spirituality and mysticism are really big ones that show up in this discourse a lot. Um, Thinking about the activities of even psychedelic scientists and clinicians and advocates and, and just enthusiast psychonauts as also frameable in sort of new religious movement terms that that it isn't just when people are naming what they're doing as a church that we have some kind of an NRM or something that we can um, analyze using that toolkit. I was at a town hall recently in in my city, Kingston, where um, I was talking a bit about my research and somebody in the audience said, well, um, traditional religions are failing and their churches are closing their doors this you know this secularization thing is happening you know what's gonna 
how are we going to replace that? And I looked around the room and I said, I think we're doing it. <laughs> this isn't not it. Just because, you know, some of us are scientists or lawyers or academics or whatever the case is. Um, so anyhow, so this, this story is about a self-described entheogenic church and it's the church of Silomathoxen. Silomathoxen, this is so fascinating. So you give 5-MeO-DMT, you, you feed it to psilocybe mushrooms and they biosynthetically produce um, this molecule called Silomathoxen. And uh, so the psilocybe mushroom is the mushroom that produces psilocybin, which uh, we break down into psilocin. This is the so-called magic mushroom. And um, 5-MeO-DMT is a molecule that is often called the god molecule. And it produces a very, uh, very intense and very short uh, sort of metaphysical trip. And this is you know, what, what the trip reports say. And, um, and, and years ago, Alexander Shulgin, the, uh, the great chemist of the, the great duo of um, Alexander and, and Anne Shulgin, hypothesized that it would be possible to actually get mushrooms to eat 5-MeO-DMT and produce salomethoxin. And so this team of um, three guys, uh, two lawyers, who are Greg Lake and Ian Benwee, and um, and, a par- and another partner, um, who is a veteran, Benjamin Moore, they, they founded this church of Salomathoxen. They used the, the Shulgin recipe and lo and behold, it seems to have worked and they are offering it. They're, they're mailing it to members who sign up for um, a, a small fee as a sacrament. And, um, Greg Lake in particular has been involved in the either the the founding or sort of the the legal structuring of um, dozens, I think over thirty entheogenic churches across the states. But this this one is sort of his his baby, his his own um, project of love, and um, and the psychedelic sacrament is supposed to be. The, the advice is to microdose it and that the experience is, I mean, this is a novel compound, um, but the experience is supposed to be a much sort of lower and slower one than 5-MeO-DMT um, and much less visual than psilocybin, but something that, um, as as he puts it, dials back the RPMs on the default mode network. Uh, that, so... That's how he describes it. Apparently, the the experience is supposed to be something like being quite calm, having a kind of witness consciousness to perform introspection. And it's actually also being treated um, by some folks who are involved as something kind of like a nootropic, like a like a smart supplement or something like that, something that enhances your cognitive power, maybe even your athletic power. And um, and so. What I find really fascinating in this case is 
is oh so many things. Um, but in this particular church of Salem with Oxen, it is, it's dealing with the stigma around psychedelics by dignifying it in three ways that I see across the psychedelic space. There's the sort of medical, primarily it, it's targeted, like a, a lot of what they discuss is about this is a, a psychological intervention for mental health. And, um, but they connect that also to this is a, a mind, body, spirit sort of complex that health has to be holistic in that way. And so there's, there's the sort of medical psychological aspect. There's the spiritual aspect. It is, it is a church so that the legal form of the church in the United States, and I'm a Canadian, so I know not as much about the legal system in the U.S., but um, part of the idea is that the legal form of the church can protect the giving of a psychedelic sacrament, or at least it can. It, it is an entity that can mount substantive legal challenges to governmental pushback against the giving of the psychedelic sacrament. It's a it's a church, and it really and it really locates all of those psychological ills that people are experiencing as a spiritual problem born of a lack of community, connection to others, to self, and to land. So it, it dignifies psychedelics with the, um, with the medical, with the religious. I see these things all the time. And also, and this may be, I think I hear this more in U.S. discourse, but with respect to war veterans. So the launch was on Veterans Day and a lot of the way that they're communicating with um, lawmakers is this is something that veterans need. And that's not unique to them. But um, I mean, one of the co-founders at least is um, a veteran. And, you know, that links back again with, with the, you know, so-called mental health, uh, which I guess is a bit euphemistic, the word health there, uh, crisis. And um, yeah, and then I guess the, it's sort of related as, as the fourth aspect is, is it's dignified legally, but that you know, is, is totally tied up with taking the form of a church. Uh, so those are some of the things that I was really interested in, but I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm really curious um, as, as more research data are produced and hopefully I'm involved in the production of those data um, about what, uh, what the trip reports are like, like what are the, what are the weird metaphysics of it? What are people actually experiencing? Cause it's, it's a fairly novel compound that doesn't have a lot of, um, of trip reports out there. And the church is actually asking all of its members to agree to participate in research. So it's, it's sort of community driven drug development. It's community development and, um, uh, 
And so it, yeah, it, it creates some interesting opportunities for research there. That sounds very, very interesting and promising. Oh my goodness. Research, yeah. Really. So uh, let me understand this. So the, they mail psilocybin fed 5D meal DNT to people that are in their like, members list and they eat them by themselves or do they have like a protocol? I imagine that they have a protocol for taking this. Uh, how does it work? And, uh, what are like the, the contingent kind of, uh, contingent protocols? Like if something goes wrong or, uh, if the experience is not as what they expected or is stronger or different, because with these kind of things, you, you never know pretty much. Right. Yeah. I think that's part of why they're really advocating a microdosing protocol. And of course, microdose is, um, is a relative term, uh, you know, generally something where you don't have any perceptible effects, but if it's a substance that is supposed to be working on your spiritual, mental, and physical health, you want to have some perceptible effects, but apparently this particular molecule just doesn't really produce much by way of, um, a lot of, um, sensory types of experiences like visual mm -hmm. or auditory or sort of synesthetic types of experiences. Um, it seems to um, produce more of a, a kind of calming and introspective effect. And so I think, yeah, that's being hedged by suggesting just a very, very small dose based on, um, I think whatever the founders have kind of, uh, you know, experimented with themselves in terms of a dosing range. Um, but in terms of the, the community versus solo protocol, they are actually offering um, Sunday services. And uh, I haven't gotten to tune into one yet, but they are, they are services that you can tune into online mm -hmm. and also um, I know Greg Lake is based in Austin, Texas, and I think that um, that Ian and Ben are as well. And so uh, I think there is either currently or in the works an idea to also have physical, maybe hybrid services. But so the idea really is to to also use the you know at least. Say traditional form of of church in the sense of the types of church that these folks are perhaps coming from and coming to Church of Salem with Oxen mm -hmm. with this in mind, um, like say a mainline Christian denomination uh, that that form of let's gather together in community once a week is is definitely part of it. Um, I suppose the fact of choosing a, a novel compound and B, a compound that has very, very sort of gentle effects is probably also a hedging strategy against um, there isn't a lot out there that would be affecting the set of people to expect that something is going to happen, um, you know, in terms of adverse events. 
and also to really materially <laughs> reduce that possibility as well, um, which is a, a savvy choice on their part. Oh man, I got, I got so many questions, so many thoughts. Uh, I mean, first off, I mean, it, I mean, in terms of choice of drug too, I mean, DMT uh, of the psychedelics doesn't seem to carry the same kind of like negative baggage that some of the other ones might have. I feel like so many people just maybe haven't even heard of DMT or, or unaware. Well, it's not DMT, 5-MeO-DMT. Yeah. So, but I like that's, I mean, even having that, like, so I mean, like to pick a drug that not many people have heard of yeah. and then to, for even, to, to even have it share a name with another one that people haven't quite heard of. So it's like just kind of protecting there. But like what I'm fascinated by actually is in some sense the overlap between, um, both of your stories in that the way that religion is functioning here is in some sort of, uh, like shield or it's, it's, it's both authorizing and authenticating. So it's, it's authorizing in that like they're, they're, uh, both groups are kind of using it as a way to establish like, Hey, we are a thing to be taken seriously. Uh, and it, it provides certain protections either of land or of rights. And so here you have, yeah, religion functioning as this concept for to, to kind of to, 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 to get people to, to take seriously. And then, yeah, also kind of, yeah, authenticating, like we exist, uh, we, we matter. And it's just, it's just so curious to me, like, is that something that kind of only functions to, to respond to kind of Western imperialist powers that, that have this, this kind of historical Christian, uh, enlightenment baggage of like, okay, yeah, religion matters. We need to take religion seriously. And so now we have these kind of small subsets and subsets groups using kind of religion as this, this, this shield or, or way of establishing identity, uh, despite Chardet, as you mentioned, your, the, the, the student or the person at that group mentioning that traditional religions are collapsing, yet now now we have these smaller groups taking up the mantle to say, no, take us seriously. I just, I, yeah, I find that's fascinating. It's more of a comment than a question, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, a, a question um, in general, like in, in what circumstances or in what places does religion work yeah. as a shield yeah. or as a, as a legitimating that's right. function? I mean, it, it's always... Who, whoever gets to say that something is or isn't religion, that's, it's always a power move. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, where does it, it functionally, where does that actually succeed in achieving the purpose of, um, of authorizing? Something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a last question for you, Shirley. It's that they're appealing to the language of churches or like they are funded as an institutionalist church. Mm-hmm. If I, if I perceive it, if I listen, understand that correctly. So is this like a conscious, conscientious thing or it's like a, they just kind of uh, thought that the experience will be more akin to a, a group of that could gather in a church that, uh, than uh, to just pursue some rights for eating these uh, mushrooms as a sacrament? What will be like, what was the logic behind the moniker of church? That's a great question because I, I think that there are so many different strands that braid together. Um, so I think one is the, the sort of, uh, politico legal expediency of the, of the institution of, of a church in the United States as, um, having certain types of legal protections mm-hmm. and that this is, um, you know, co-founded by 
two attorneys hmm. uh, who are very, um, very savvy in this regard. And so they, so they know how to work with that. Um, in fact, one is an IP um, attorney and, and that's Ian. And then, um, and Greg has really made the, this work with entheogenic churches in general, his bread and butter for the past while. So I think um, that's, that's certainly part of it. And there is this, um, the, the worldview that they espouse is one of that, this connectedness and holism with respect to mind, body, spirit, and community and, um, land or, you know, earth is, this is something that they characterize as uh, like a fundamentally religious or spiritual matter, mm-hmm. uh, a fundamentally religious or spiritual concern. Right. And then there is this also just something that I notice in the psychedelic space, a constant bringing in of religion language and sometimes that is I think because people are looking they're grasping for words to describe things that are really beyond the models Mm -hmm. that we have um that they're they're trying to put language to ineffable experiences and Mm -hmm. So it's understandable and predictable that perhaps the language of religion, spirituality, um, that whole web of concepts would be the type of thing that people reach for. But then there is this other phenomenon that I notice, which is an association between religion and spirituality, psychedelics, that that really does posit and stand behind the idea that there, there is an essential relationship there. Sometimes I see it expressed in terms of, um, and this is, is, I think another authenticating desire. And I'm really interested to dig more into this that, you know, did you know that the ancient mysteries were psychedelic Um, despite uh, what my biblical studies colleagues say is a hypothesis that has been debunked over and over again. There's still this claim in the psychedelic space that in fact, that's the case. And to go even a little bit further, that perhaps the root of all religion is psychedelic. This is something that I hear fairly often. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's certainly a kind of, um, a flavor of perennialism uh, or some sort of universalism that that whatever it is that people get in touch with in psychedelic experiences is really sort of the ground stuff of reality. And this is the thing that pops up and takes on different guises in the form of 
different religions. So I think there are a lot of different strands of logic um, tying together, you know, this project with the form of a church and the concept of religion and spirituality, the, the two of which those need to be teased out in the psychedelic discourse um, for sure. But I, I hear them uh, used a lot kind of interchangeably or almost like spiritual as the adjectival form of religious <laughs> or sorry, of, um, of religion. All in that comment there. Now we can move to your topic, Jordan. Okay, so we're we're going from the world of of living material chemical life to cold dead technology. Uh, so uh, I actually I kind of have two stories. One set the first one sets up the the second. So the the first story actually starts in in 2017 and then kind of ramps up in 2021 and 2022, and that's Facebook. While well, now Meta uh, is pushed to start connecting and developing informing uh, uh, kind of relationships with like mega churches throughout the U.S. and across the world. And so they started a faith partnership team back in 2017, and then in 2021 they they formed this advisor. Council, and they started working directly with religious groups, kind of during the COVID pandemic, to find a way to make Facebook more appealing and more attracting to bring in these these large kind of mega church organizations to help kind of organize their communities when they couldn't meet in physical spaces. So that's that's kind of how things start. We've got Meta and Facebook with their with their tendrils and fingers seeping into religious communities, which is unsurprising because mega churches in the U.S. and around the world make a ridiculous amount of money, and Facebook and Meta are interested in money. So how do they how do they tap in to religion to to make some money? But then more interesting, I think, because that's unsurprising. I think there's uh, that was bound to happen. But more interesting is this 2022 study that uh, came out. Uh, it's by a uh, group of scientists, primarily the leading scientist is uh, David Glowacki, um, who they've designed this VR experience to induce what they call self-transcendent experiences. And for those who aren't familiar, there's been a growing number of studies coming out using VR uh, to induce altered states of consciousness. And what we're finding is that again and again and again, the VR and and various technologies in general are actually really, really good and successful at inducing similar states that you would get in psychedelic experiences or even religious experiences, uh, at least in terms of tracking kind of what's going on in the brain and then uh, tracking phenomenological or uh, uh, qualitative uh, data as these participants are coming out. So here you have, uh, yeah, this technology that can induce these things. So we're going from psychedelics to the, the popular term, which is now technodelic, this idea that these technologies can produce these types of experiences. So this, this program that they created is called Isness. And what it does is it brings, uh, I think, four to five people into a shared digital virtual world. So uh, folks put on the headsets and then they, uh, they kind of have this a bit of sensory deprivation. And then what they see uh, with the VR technology is that they're in this shared space. And their bodies, if they look down and look at their bodies, it's this kind of energetic, glowing uh, kind of orbiness. And then the every uh, so the four people in the shared virtual space all have this kind of glowing orbiness. And then they start the the programmers uh, make it so that the these energetic bodies start merging. And what people reported 
once they kind of got out of the experience was this blurring of boundaries between themselves and the others. So all of a sudden they, they didn't feel like they were this kind of singular human being anymore. All of a sudden they had had this merger with these other human beings. And people were talking about this being kind of a pr- profound experience. Uh, they used the language. It was a moment of energetic coalescence, uh, enabling participants to include multiple others within their self-representation. And then as part of the, the qualitative data, what are the, the sciences were measuring? They use these four scales, with the, which I'm sure Chardet uh, is familiar with. So they include, that was the inclusion of the community, or the inclusion of community in self scale, the ego dissolution inventory, the communitas scale, and the MEQ30, which is the mystical experience questionnaire. And, uh, yeah, they, they found that the, the data was, was, uh, matched what you would get with, uh, a, a typical dose of, of psilocybin mushrooms. And so mm-hmm. I bring this up because, I mean, for a whole host of reasons. First off, we've got Meta and Facebook, who's already kind of entering in both the VR space and the religion space. And now we're starting to recognize and realize how powerful this technology can be. And it's only a matter of time. Like this is, it's not going to be surprising. It's actually kind of a, a banal type of horror that Facebook's going to end up charging churches to produce these types of experiences in people. Or even more frightening is that Facebook is going to begin experimenting on these types of kind of powerful self-representation and, and, and uh, self-transcendent experiences without people knowing, just like they did with all the news that came out of their, their data manipulation uh, uh, just a, a year or two ago. And so so this is this is an area where I think religion scholars kind of can bring a unique voice is that we can kind of piece these things together and see like wait a minute let's let's uh let's 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 take a more critical eye to what's going on here because this is powerful stuff. I mean religion itself is a type of technology and 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 religions throughout history have been using kind of various elements and aspects to to change people's sense of self to to at, affect people's kind of uh, experience of the world. And now we have quicker, easier access and, and models and ways of doing it with the addition of now mega corporations that have the power to induce this stuff. And if we're not aware of it, then we're in trouble. Uh, much like, I mean, I, and again, like it's, I mean, history repeats itself. So the, 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 the church during the the medieval era was a type of mega corporation. And, and in some sense, uh, the major religions have functioned as mega corporations for a while doing stuff to participants without them realizing it. But yeah, now, now it's, it's scarier because, well, actually maybe it's not scary. I don't know. Maybe it's just, it's, it's not scarier. It's just scary the same and we need to be aware. So that, that's my story for today. Well, that sounds fascinating. I wasn't even aware of that. Uh, that development, uh, technodelics, I think it's, uh, you have to trademark that concept <laughs> for your own research if, if it's not already done. Yeah. Um, one of the questions it comes, uh, it comes to mind that, uh, okay, so they are using VR to induce this kind of experiences and people go through them. That is, this is only for the mega churches. What kind of denominations are these mega churches? I mean, if, uh, it comes to mind if someone says mega church, often it's Pentecostal or charismatic evangelical. Um, yeah, so what, uh, to which audience is this directed? And if it's just this kind of quality of ego dissolution or, or, uh, or the merging, is uh, this the main feature of the experience? 
or there are other kind of, uh, if there are an array of different mystical experiences that one could could go through with this technology? Just ask the questions. Yeah, I mean, those are those are all some great questions. So, uh, I mean, Facebook's not going to say they're targeting like a particular denomination, but most of the ones they've been working on have been, as you mentioned, like these these large mega Pentecostal churches or kind of evangelical American Christian churches. Uh, I'm not sure how much they're working with uh, with religious groups in the South, but they they want bigness, right? So they're going to look for the largest uh, 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 kind of um, most independent groups that they can work with so that they can more easily kind of uh, get their control in there. So, but I, I, I don't think they would say they're limiting to that. They, they'd want to be like, look, we're open to everybody. Any church can use uh, our, our models. Any church can use our, our programming. Let us know what you want so we can include it type thing. So I don't, I, I don't, I think they're maybe a bit agnostic in that way, but they haven't. So here's the thing. Facebook hasn't, or Meta hasn't yet introduced these type of, of mystical experiences into what they're bringing to these churches. But I mean, that's a, that's DLC content. They're going to bring that later. They're going to be like, Hey, Pentecostal churches, if for an extra $10 or for an extra billion dollars a year, we'll give your, your participants an option to click a button and have a mystical experience and maybe start speaking in tongues or, uh, or, or something of that nature. It's not here yet, but it's, it, we're, we're only a short time away. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's very very. I have lots of questions, but I would also like like to hear Charvet comments on this this topic. Uh, one of the things that I'm wondering in your case, Jordan, is something that I'm also wondering in the case of joiners of entheogenic NRMs, um, or even you know just sort of people who are attracted to the psychedelic scene is who, who and why. Um, mm. So is it people who uh, maybe are the people who are going to wind up seeking to leverage technodelics, people who have been part of charismatic churches and have found the snake handling unsatisfying you know are they not having the non-ordinary experiences that they were promised or that they really want to have and so they're going to seek them elsewhere um you know i wonder if that about like are those the people who are going to be streamed into a church of silent methoxin or um you know into a program like isness d or yeah else um (laughs) meta in particular might be working on in terms of producing non-ordinary experiences uh or is it people and i credit um my dear friend and colleague um professor dr beth singler with this one um is it actually like sbnr types who are seeking more structure who want Mm. to come to something that has some either maybe more institutional structure like something that's formed in the form of a church or something that has um like a, a technical structure, you know, in the mm-hmm. case of, of technodelics. I mean, yeah, those are great, great questions. Like who, who are the players here? Who, who wants in? And of course I think we have, we have layers. So, 
I mean, in uh, the the easiest ones are are those in power who recognize the power of these experiences to kind of keep people hooked, keep people coming back, keep their attention, all that. So you have the the, the Facebooks, the Metas, and 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 various kind of r- religious leaders. But then the on the ground folks who actually might be interested in kind of pursuing this, I think you've got probably a whole range because on the one hand. Uh, the the biggest push was during COVID lockdowns when all of a sudden you couldn't go to kind of the, the material physical church places where you would have been getting these experiences and kind of feeding off the energy and, and affect. So now there's a bit of uh, kind of a, a stopgap of a preventative measure or like a backup plan. Like, hey, if things get shut down again, don't worry. We can give you those experiences that you that you expect from uh, from religious ceremony or religious practice. So, and, and that's actually, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's an earnest and sincere type of pursuit because I mean, people, people, people attend these ceremonies and people are participate in religious practice because like these, these experiences are a part of that. And I think there's something real and valuable there. So finding ways, this is, this is one of the ways that the, the technology is probably good. Finding ways to allow people to have these shared experiences, even when they're apart is beautiful. So the technology is neutral. The, the technology can, can do these good, wonderful, beautiful things. And then uh, kind of the more horrifying things as well. So mm-hmm. I, I think you have, have that aspect and, and, and that level and that type of folks that are going to be searching this out. But then I think you're also going to have this interesting element where all of a sudden people realize like, oh, wait, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to a religious ceremony to get this sensation, to get this experience of connectedness of, of the mystical of, of being in communitas. I can be at my home with my VR headset on connected with some strangers and it's just as powerful, just as wonderful, uh, and just as beautiful. So all of a sudden, I think you're going to see even more of a flood kind of a way as people realize like, Oh, the power of these experiences doesn't need to be centralized in a particular religious ceremony. And I think this is kind of, there's parallels a lot of what's happening in the psychedelic community as well. And as you're seeing, and probably with the Church of Salomexin, is that people are going to be like, oh, wait, we don't need the traditional folks to, to, to guide us and direct us. We can do this on our own. There's a, a level of independence and, and self-authority that comes with that. And then on top, that lends to like an, another scary aspect of, okay, well, if, if these things aren't bound by ritual, aren't bound by tradition, that kind of lends itself to to different types of abuse. So yeah, that your your question spirals off all sorts of kind of messy complications about who's involved. Hearing a lot of fear here, Jordan. A lot of fear. <laughs> and beauty, and beauty. I mean, these these experiences are real, are powerful, are meaningful and important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why we need to take them seriously. I don't want to dismiss what's going on nearly as gimmicky. I think there are plenty of gimmicks that happen and, and occur with promises of VR and, and all these things. We need to take these seriously because the meaningful stuff is happening. And and part of it, yeah, but not like seriously, but not too seriously. Let's just, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's a real question about how to capture um, these these phenomena at, at different at different levels. So we just got the most recent census data back in Canada, and this um, like two decade trend has continued of, in fact, the the dominant religions um, shrinking and the 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 nun category growing and but Hmm. it's really tricky without that category being broken down into you know maybe we need technodelic added to that we need we need psychedelic (laughs) added to that we need 
so many different things added to that, but you know, there's um, lots of good research on uh, the, the possibilities and limitations and enabling constraints of how you can possibly pose those types of questions in instruments of that kind. Definitely. I don't know, for some reason, it, it, when you were describing this kind of uh, long experience or how people merge, the balls of energy that they are themselves merge with others. For some reason, it reminded me of a tool video of, I don't know, some of those, uh, yeah, for the, for this album that it's like, it's like the Godhead. It has the Godhead and uh, like a, the paintings of Alex Gray and stuff are merging together. I want now it's a possibility to like not not, not only see the video but being part of that kind of a yeah. thing. And I was wondering specifically if there is like kind of a representation of this. I don't know if it's an access of the video or a recording for uh, for one to see and just to have an idea of how this experience go through. Yeah, I can. We can post the link on the, the RSP website, so that that shouldn't be hard. They've got they've got video and pictures of of their experiment, um, and this was a scientific study. But again, we're seeing a rise of what are called digital therapeutics, or folks using this technology to create these experiences and getting in the hands of as many people as possible. So we're going to probably see a a public version or accessible version within the next year or two. Um, I also just want to give it a quick heads up. So my, <laughs> I'm getting my flashing battery light and my headphones telling me that my battery is about to die. So if I cut out, that's why you can keep going without me. But yeah, just a, a warning. Surely. No, also we are uh, almost in an hour. We're about to close. Before your battery dies, I would like to yeah. thank you for joining us in, the, in this episode, the discourse episode. And if you have any final comments, just to say them briefly, please go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I don't know if this can be done briefly, but Jordan, when the, when Glowacki at all were working with the mystical experience questionnaire, um, on which, uh, my intellectual hero and Taves has done amazing work, um, and about which I'm very curious. How did they, how did they deal with with mysticism there or how did they deal with the MEQ? I mean, was it, was it thoughtful? Was it, um, was it sort of reifying that this is, this is a mystical experience, not an experience deemed mystical? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they parsed it out that well because it doesn't look like they had a religion scholar on their team, which here plug for neuroscientists and techno scientists and folks doing scientific work. Please bring scholars of religion when you're dealing with <laughs> things that, that uh, engage with religious discourse or religious concepts. Uh, no, uh, they did end up, it, this is interesting. They ended up coining the term pneumodelic. So they want to kind of transition from technodelic to pneumodelic, which is this idea of pneuma, breath, spirit, soul, and then uh, the delic to reveal, make visible, manifest. So, I mean, it's the wild west right now. People are trying to, to, to land grab and, 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 and make up terms and hope that one of them sticks and takes over. So that was, I think, their attempt in dealing with a bit of the, the mystical elements, which is just this waste bin category of all sorts of stuff. I like that as a, a final comment. Radical interdisciplinarity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Yes, that's right. Let's champion yeah. that. We need we need real science humanities collaboration, but especially where religion and religion relevant concepts are being used. Religious yeah. studies scholars um, should be present. Can really add a lot to that, and also the 
this terminological thing, pneumodelic, technodelic, entheogenic, psychedelic, um, critically historicize whatever terms we're coining and grabbing. Yeah, definitely. I think that's an excellent takeaway. And for now, we have concluded our discourse episode. I would like to thank us again, Jordan and Sharday, for joining us here. And we hope you enjoyed our talk. And uh, thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at Patreon.com slash Project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thank you.